Packages by Expedia. You were made to be rechargeable. We were made to package flights, hotels, and hammocks for less. Expedia. Made to travel. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People, and welcome to 2021, the first episode of 2021. We've been going strong since 2016, thanks to being a listener. We're excited to bring the news that you don't know this week with me, Sam, Kaya, and Diara. And then Netta joins us to give us an update on the protests and what's happening with regard to policing. And then I sit down with Fix SAPD, a group of organizers who are fighting around police accountability in San Antonio. My advice for this week is write it down that like I have been going back and forth with somebody I'm close to and we've been actually writing it down, like not just talking it through, but writing down our feelings and and sort of things that we're trying to process and things that we're thinking about, hopes and dreams. And it matters. So I'd say at the beginning of 2021, write it down, commit to the words, commit to the ideas, be in relationship with people in a way that allows you both to process the written word and not uh, only the, the oral. So write it down. Hello, everyone. By the time you hear this, it'll be January 5th, Election Day in Georgia. Welcome to Pod Save the People. We missed you. I'm Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Diara Ballinger. I'm Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. I'm Kaya Henderson at Henderson Kaya on Twitter. <laughs> I'm DeRay at D-E-R-A-Y on Twitter. So hopefully we're all celebrating, enjoying the day. I, I'm knocking on wood and my head for great results. The results that we want in Georgia that'll get us these two Senate seats that'll... um you know, get us even wilder tweets from you know who, you know, he's going to be heated if he loses, if we lose, they lose those two Senate seats. Um, he's already heated. Did you hear that? Already- Did you hear his call with the Secretary of State in Georgia? Oh, my soul. But you, but you know, the other thing that I'm thinking about for just the Trumps in general, y'all are running out of places where you actually can live January mm. 21st. Like, don't, like, Georgia was probably a place you could actually go and be somewhat received. I mean, nowhere where black people are in Georgia. However, there are a lot of other places you can go. So I just feel like they really are making it so the only place they are going to be tolerated is in is Florida. Just, but not even the whole thing. Not even the whole thing. Just South Florida. I don't know what's going on with South Florida. Like, those election maps, like, I'm thinking twice about South Florida. Mm. It is, you know, but it was interesting because the Secretary of State in Georgia on that call, I only heard a little bit of it, but people realize like Trump has this sort of aura of his base is is willing to protect him, but that does not extend to everybody in the party. And these people are like, okay, we can ride the wave a little bit, but we are we will not survive the the prosecution and the whatever. And people are like, we can't go down with that. And that's Actually, interesting. It'll be we also can't let the Republicans who enabled Trump just like act like the last four years didn't happen. Like, I don't Come know on. what the strategy is. That's right. But we cannot act like they are going to be like, oh, well, it's done now. You're like, uh, what? They have to be held accountable. I don't know when the accountability starts. I mean, I think with this certification of the Electoral College that's happening on the 6th. I think their latest I saw was like 12 different Republicans who were going to come out against the results in their states. I mean, it doesn't matter. But again, Kaya, to your point about accountability, like when when does that clock start? Is it January 7th? Is it January 20th? Like what is going to happen to these folks? 
if anything. I mean, and I think if I were the president-elect, among the many other things I would be doing was talking to the DOJ about what Trump is doing. Because the other thing that's interesting is that, you know, it's illegal. You can't really, <laughs> can't do that. It's against the law. And so I think that's the interesting thing too. Like, is this going to be a, yet another thing that he gets away with? It's wild. It's absolutely wild. I mean, I think the only reason why 12 Republican senators would actually stand up for this is because they know that there is no there's no negative consequence for them. This lack of accountability is really, really dangerous. I watched the Wisconsin senator on Meet the Press this morning, and I watched Chuck Todd really go in in ways that I've never seen Chuck Todd do before, where this man literally was just spewing untruths. And Chuck Todd was like, wait, we like we, we literally cannot let this stand. Like, this is not true. So you can't just keep saying it. And it's not okay. And he just kept on talking because he knows that nobody is going to hold him accountable. There's no repercussions for him saying untruths. And that we have to figure out how to deal with because that's what's emboldened these people to do what they're doing. It's sort of wild to think back uh, at almost how normalized this has become over the past four years. I can't even count the number of like open, plain crimes that we've seen the current president or this president's administration commit, right? And just plain as day, clear crimes like crimes that carry a hefty sentence if you or me or anybody else uh, committed it. But for some reason, the system has continuously and consistently protected and completely prevented from being held accountable the, the, the people who've committed these crimes. So everything from like the, the election uh, and the coordination with Russia over the election, crimes there, perjury when asked to explain their conduct with regard to the election, to what we're seeing right now, which is open election fraud, right? Like an, in another election. And so, I mean, it's just at some point, like it's completely meaningless um, to even like, use the word accountability or to pretend that accountability is a function of the current system if Donald Trump is not going to be held accountable for the litany of things that he has caused. And that's just like the, you know, that's not even including the crimes against humanity, right? Crimes mm -hmm. against whole groups mm -hmm. of people, whole populations, whole countries that got banned. Right. So like this is this is huge. And, and he has to be held accountable either domestically or internationally. I don't know if there's a war crimes tribunal. I don't know what it is, but like he actually does need to end up in prison. And one of the things I know this is not our news. We have other news. But one of the things that went under the radar is his last wave of appointments. So he is he's working until the last moment. I don't know if you know that Hope Hicks, if you remember Hope Hicks was like his right hand person. She got appointed to the board overseeing the Fulbright scholarships in the past couple weeks. So that is one of her sort of gifts long term. Uh, Pam Bondi, if you remember Pam Bondi, who was the Florida Attorney General, Pam Bondi got appointed to the Board of Trustees for the JFK Center for Performing Arts. Oh, no. Stephanie Grisham, who you probably don't remember because she was the White House press secretary who never held a formal public media briefing during her time as the White House press secretary. She got appointed to the National Board for Education Sciences. And this is among a set of 40 appointments that he did in the past couple of weeks to a host of things like the Commission on Fine Arts, the National Museum and Library Services Board, and the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. So he's seeding 
all of his people to be there for the long term. And it's like, this is actually, you know, I know the Dems are like, you know, rules, rules, rules. This man didn't give two bird craps about the rules. Like, you just can't fight this kind of treachery with a really cool press conference. Like, people gotta, the cleanup on this administration needs to be swift and fierce. Mm-hmm. Well, mm. speaking of that, my news is about the honorable Congresswoman Ayanna Presley from the state of Massachusetts. So this article was really interesting. Um, one, I think I'm just really fascinated by what's going to happen with Congress, just given what Congress looks like now and just the fact that we had a really diverse class, probably the most diverse class coming in in 2019. And now in 2021, we're adding on to that. So I think what's interesting is like what's going to happen with this new crop of folks. But what I'm really interested in is what's going to happen to the folks that have been there since 1966 pickup sticks. That's what's going to be interesting. So Ayanna Presley, we know, like she had this whirlwind freshman term. She was a part of the squad with AOC and Rashida Tlaib and Ilha Omar. Um, She was a surrogate for Elizabeth Warren on top of all those things. And just, you know, given her time, you know, Boston City Council and everything she did there, you know, we kind of fell in love with Ayanna Presley through all those things, but then also through her very personal sharing of stories around, um, you know, being a survivor of sexual assault, her battle with a disease that caused her to lose her hair. Um, And she just has been this really source of pride and brazenness and boldness and truth and she comes across as as a sister girl which obviously I love so all these things to say though you know she really is and this is this article goes on and on to say it's a really great profile that she is kind of poised to really be a leader and really to be an ally to this administration as it goes on to do all these things that Biden has set out to do. What does that mean for Ayanna Presley? What does that mean in terms of her holding the Biden administration accountable? What does that mean for her as a very progressive member of Congress and having these close relationships to AOC, et cetera? Um, and so what does that balance of that relationship look like so that she's seen as someone that's helping the administration along, but she's also not seen as an obstructionist when it comes to progressive issues? That one is just an interesting thing to see how that will all play out. I think just her alone and what she has done in Congress since she's gotten there, but also what she plans to do now with this new term is really interesting, too, and really exciting. So planning to reintroduce legislation that would end qualified immunity. And we know, and obviously Sam and Durer are experts on this, but a legal principle that makes it harder to sue police officers for their actions. Um, She also has another proposal she seeks to pursue, which is to end the death penalty, another one to create new federal grants for states that commit to eliminating discriminatory school discipline policies, which we know pushes black girls out of school. And she also wants to make sure that there's an equitable, you know, kind of distribution of vaccine and response to COVID when it comes to communities of color. So... One, exciting to see all these things that she wants to pursue. I think, it, again, it will be interesting. And I think what what I was actually reminded of from reading this article is that she um, was a senior aide to Senator John Kerry. Kerry has been nominated to be Biden's uh, climate envoy. So I think that will be an, an, another interesting relationship that she's a, able to leverage. 
you know, I think, again, I think it'll be interesting to see how she balances this. And I'm excited to see how she does it because like, she is definitely politically savvy. Um, but just wanted to bring it to the pod because one, you know, just think she's, you know, kind of really a fan club of Ayanna Presley. And so wanted to bring that to the, the pod to just get y'all's perspective on that. I love Ayanna. When I did my book tour, uh, Ayanna had just been elected and she actually facilitated the book tour in Boston. It was great. She was great. It was before she had been sworn in. It was so early. Uh, I'm excited to see what what she can do moving forward and the squad. It's also cool that they have grown their numbers, right? We think about Cori Bush. We think about the, we think about Bowman. We think about what it's like that a progressive, um, an even more progressive group is is starting to form in Congress. I am interested to see, now that we get out of the Trump era and go into an administration, what can we all accomplish, right? So like we have nailed the rhetoric, We and this isn't about just Ayanna, but about the whole left, right? Like we, so much of the last four years was pushing back against Trump. It was uh, harm reduction. It was risk mitigation. It was uncovering. And now we have a Biden administration. So what does it look like to actually have to push a Democrat to the left a little bit? What do you introduce and get passed that actually helps states? You know, who are the actual content experts who are also elected, right? Like people who understand the will of the people. How do we, that's one of the things that I was always intrigued by with AOC. She's like, I was a waitress, right? Or like a bartender. You're like, okay, cool. You think about Corey and her background. So I think the next four years will be telling about how we are able to have progressive voices in a body that big. Because, you know, for all the might of the squad, they are a handful of people in a much bigger institution. And this could go a couple of ways. You could either see like a small set of people help everybody realize where they need to go. You could see the the middle sort of push back on those people. Like you could, you know, I'm interested to see what this looks like now that Trump is out of office. My news is from ProPublica. There's an article called Vaccinating Black Americans is Essential, but Key States Aren't Doing the Work to Combat Hesitancy. And um, this article was really interesting to me. Um, as an African-American, I feel like I'm super clear about both the impacts of COVID-19 on our particular community, African-Americans are being hospitalized for COVID at three, more than three times the rate of white Americans. And I'm also super clear about the fact that our communities are incredibly hesitant about the vaccine. And so the question is, now that we have the vaccine, how are we making sure that communities of color know what the upsides and downsides are and can make an informed decision um, when the CDC says that communities of color are a critical population to vaccinate, but there doesn't seem to be a concrete action plan to make sure that that happens. Um, ProPublica looked at the distribution plans for the nine states with the most black residents in the United States. And the long story short is there's no clear strategy. There's no clear investment in figuring out how to overcome the historic mistrust of the medical establishment and the high levels of skepticism about the vaccine. Um, if you know black people, you know that we're not really feeling this vaccine, right? We got Tuskegee in our heads. <laughs> I mean, this is not, listen, this is not unfounded. This is a historical mistrust of the medical establishment 
um, that is rooted in unscrupulous medical experimentation. We got Tuskegee. We think about Henrietta Lacks and how they stole her cells. We think about the gynecological experimentation. The Literally, the field of gynecology is built on the exploitation of African-American women, right? All of those things. Um, it's not just historical mistrust. There's also current mistrust in that minorities receive lower quality health care than whites, even when you adjust for age and race and income and whatnot. Uh, there's mistrust of the government. There's mistrust of hospitals. There's mistrust of the pharmaceutical industry and their profit motives. And there is also a very small amount of African-Americans who are in medical research and in academia. And so we have general levels of distrust. In fact, while 25% of Americans are hesitant about the vaccine, 35% of African-Americans are hesitant, which means they will probably not take the vaccine. And so we have this situation where in the very same way that we watch the federal government fail to come up with a coordinated response to COVID and left things up to the states, we're seeing the same thing happen with the vaccine situation where the federal government has not actually created a coordinated vaccine dispersal plan, but they're leaving it up to states. And they're leaving it up to states to make sure residents of color are vaccinated, but many states are just not there. They haven't had the time to come up with a communications plan. State health departments have been underfunded and state health departments are the ones who've been managing this pandemic to date. And so haven't had the time to sit down and figure out how do we message? How do we think about um, reaching communities of color differently? And so literally they don't have plans. In Texas, in Georgia, in Illinois, there is literally no mention in the state plan about how they're going to reach and reassure black residents. In California, they say they're going to have a public information campaign, but there's no details as to how they're going to outreach to black uh, residents. There are lots of good ideas about how to do this, right? You need a serious social media strategy. You need to partner with uh, black influencers, you need to partner with churches, ministers, other trusted voices. Um, but there are not a lot of states who have substantive plans around how they are going to actually deal with this. I will highlight, though, North Carolina and Virginia, who actually started preparing months ago to reassure residents about the vaccines. In North Carolina, they created a committee with leaders from marginalized communities to guide the state's overall response to the pandemic. And so that committee is actually advising on the messaging. That committee is doing a webinar for Black religious leaders. I have said across all of my work in education and international education, the people closest to the problem often have the best solutions. And so when you engage these people from the beginning around how we solve this pandemic problem, of course you would get state plans that are much more effective around how we're going to get Black Americans vaccinated. In Virginia, 
Uh, They've been hosting town hall meetings specifically for communities of color. They've also hired a company to monitor the spread of misinformation so they know where to target their efforts to get people to take the vaccine. Um, The CDC has set aside $6.5 million for a bunch of national organizations, but there's not even information on whether or not those organizations have gotten the money or what their plans are. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately what this is going to boil down to, well, actually, before I tell you what it's going to boil down to, let me also say that data collection is incomplete. So the CDC requires that states uh, report on how they are vaccinating particular demographics. But in fact, because they have been underfunded, because they have not had the opportunity to pull all of this together, the CDC has no way of enforcing this. The race and ethnicity fields are not mandatory on many of these state vaccination registrations. And so we won't know. The data will be incomplete. The data will be incorrect. Um, And ultimately, this is going to fall to trusted doctors, trusted community leaders in the black community to go out and talk to our people to explain why the speed with which this vaccination was developed is in part because of technological advances. There are black and brown leaders are going to have to take control of the messaging because states cannot. They haven't been equipped to. And so our people are in a dire situation. They have a healthy and a credible amount of skepticism. And if we don't get the vaccine, we are more likely to die than other people. And so it's now time for us to step up as a community to not rely on state governments and clearly not the federal government to talk to our people about their concerns about this vaccine so that they can get what they need so that we can save lives, save black lives. Mm-hmm. So my news is a little bit out of left field. Uh, and it's an article that I read a few days ago uh, that really blew my mind. And it's about China. And in particular, China's recent announcement that they're going to be expanding and investing in what's called artificial rain enhancement rockets and technology. Now, Rain enhancement might, or weather modification technologies might sound like a conspiracy theory. Um, They're, of course, something that is like in sci-fi movies. Um, But it turns out that China has been experimenting for decades now in the use of rockets and other technologies um, that can make it more or less likely for there to be rainfall. Um, And this is a strategy that China has said that they will use um, to address issues like droughts and monsoons and to otherwise uh, control or influence the weather in up to 60% of Chinese territory by 2025. So reading this article, you know, I immediately wanted to look at some of the details and the research. Um, it turns out that there is research that supports uh, the idea that by sending or, or launching rockets into the sky that have quote-unquote cloud seeding technology, you can actually um, influence precipitation and rainfall. Um, and that the United States actually spent several decades, starting in the 1950s, investing in this technology and even weaponizing the technology in the Vietnam War. 
Um, so I wanted to bring this to the conversation because this just sounds like really wacky and wild and unrealistic, but it turns out uh, that the Chinese government is investing at least $175 million to bring this technology to scale uh, in a way that could have huge impacts uh, if it works on society um, and our ability to live in places that have a lot of rainfall or no rainfall at all and affect those things. So Sam, this blew my mind. I didn't know that um, cloud seeding was used in the Vietnam War, that the Department of Defense seeded clouds to extend the monsoon season along the Ho Chi Minh Trail during Operation Popeye from 1967 uh, to 1972. And it was this idea of making mud not war. And you're right. When I first saw this, I was like, okay, conspiracy theory, they're making rain. And then I was like, oh my goodness. And, you know, it's one of those things where like, what are the downstream consequences of you making up the clouds? Like, what does that do to the ecosystem? I mean, I am interested in seeing how this plays out and like where they test it. That's what I thought. I'm like, where are y'all testing these clouds? Is it, uh, is it around poor people? Is it like, what's going on to, to figure out whether this is like safe to do? Um, and I could see the testing being shady boots. So, uh, so I'm interested in learning more. I had two thoughts as I read this article. The first one was like, wow, <laughs> right? Like, who is thinking about cloud control and apparently China and us too, right? Like, it, these are just kind of the things that you don't really think about, but scientists are out here manipulating the whole entire environment. And, you know, John Q. Public has no idea about these things happening. The piece in the article where, you know, the Chinese government claimed a great success when they launched rain suppressing rockets to make sure that the Olympic opening ceremonies in Beijing were dry. Like what? I mean, it's 2021 and I was today years old when I found out that that kind of weather manipulation was happening. Right. And I don't think that people know about that. And I think that that is a huge part of the climate conversation that we should be having together. Um, I think the other sort of very interesting thing to me was that whatever you might be doing for your country in terms of climate control ultimately has effects on surrounding areas, right? Because all of that, you know, you don't just control the clouds over China. In fact, uh, other Asian countries, uh, at least the article said, are concerned that China's programs could negatively affect the monsoons and irregular rains that have fed their people for millennia. And so this idea of individual countries making decisions about how they want to affect climate and the environment, when in fact those decisions have an outsized impact on regions and, and a variety of countries, was just something that, again, like I hadn't thought about. And as we have climate conversations, we have to talk about it affects lots of people. And so whatever decisions we make, we have to make them collectively. We can't make these kind of individual country decisions. Um, my news is about the amputation epidemic. My Gurkha mother had diabetes for as long as I knew her. Um, I don't know when she actually was diagnosed uh to be diabetic, but my whole childhood, I can remember her taking insulin shots and like having to go get the little tin can that the the needles were in and all this other stuff. 
And I came across this article that was put up about ProPublica, and it blew my mind in a lot of ways because I just didn't know. But in some ways, it felt all too familiar. So when I was reading, so the short version is that black people are more likely to have a limb amputated, especially because of things like diabetes, uh, than other people. And here's the thing. So let me just talk about the things that stuck with me. One is that despite all the advancements we've got in diabetes care, the rate of amputations across the country grew by 50% between 2009 and 2015. About 130,000 amputations a year, often in poor communities and underinsured communities. Black people lose limbs at a rate three times higher than other people. And the article is actually a profile on a doctor whose whole thing is like, we don't need to amputate people's limbs. Like we can, sometimes we might need to, but a lot of these cases are are for a host of reasons that don't require this. And, you know, of course, always trying to figure out like what structurally is at play here? Like how does this happen? And it is stuff that you could imagine, right? Some of it is around medical schools. So a lot of specialists aren't qualified for national loan forgiveness. So it means that you have primary care dentists and psychiatrists who are private practice providers and they qualify for national loan forgiveness. Uh, But you look at a whole host of other people like diabetes specialists, endocrinologists who don't qualify for national loan forgiveness. So there are medical specialists who have significant debt who just aren't really going into working in nonprofit or public facilities where a lot of impacted communities are. Uh, There is no mechanism that requires hospitals to engage in an alternative to amputation first. So, you know, you can imagine people who uh, don't have, you know, I think about when I went to the doctor, my father didn't really spend, like if the doctor said something, he was like, okay, he wasn't like, I don't know, pushing back on the doctor. And there's no requirement that they actually have to do anything differently or that they have to like offer a set of options. And um, there were so many structural things that I looked and I was like, ah. And of course, as you can imagine, general surgeons have a financial incentive to amputate because they don't get paid to operate if they recommend saving a limb. And you just look at it. So the article's fascinating, but the top line is that black people's limbs are getting cut off uh, prematurely, unnecessarily. There's a set of people who are raising this to be an issue, and I'm interested to see what we do to fix it. So I, I you know, this is new to me, um, but sadly not surprising, and you know, made me really reflect on like all of the different ways, you know, even just over the course of this pod, that we've become aware of new ways in which Black people are being mistreated or harmed, or in this case, having their limbs removed. Uh, because of a, a set of structural and systemic and institutionally racist uh, factors, which are are plain as day in this article, right? And and you mentioned a number of them, Duray. You know, just reading through things that I just didn't even know were were barriers. So you know, the law allows insurance providers uh, not to cover the tests to screen for vascular disease in the legs. The federal government forgives student loans of some doctors in in underserved areas, but not certain specialists. So the physicians most critical to treating diabetic complications are in short supply. Policies written by hospitals, insurers, and the government don't require surgeons to consider limb-saving options before applying a blade, which actually, you know, is a parallel to policing, where the law doesn't require the police to use non-lethal force before killing somebody. 
it's a completely different sector, a different industry, but you know, similar problems, similar racism, um, similar disparities, and it's black people who are bearing the brunt of this racism. And so, uh, you know, it's it's frustrating. It's not surprising, um, and and this has to be a focus of policy interventions and broader transformational change as well. Don't go anywhere. More politics the people's coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. And now a check-in with Janetta Elzey, also known as Netta, as she gives us an update on what's happening around the country with regard to the protests. Hey everybody, it's me, Netta. Thanks for tuning back in, and Happy New Year! I'm really, really excited that it's officially 2021, and I can truly say that I actually had a lovely New Year's Eve. COVID kept me miles and miles away from my family, 
But thanks to technology, I was able to FaceTime with them and crack jokes and have my grandfather talk so wild to me, (laughs) telling me that he didn't care it was New Year's Eve where I was because I was living in the future, and to call him back when it was midnight Central Standards Time. (laughs) I don't know anyone who, like, my grandfather is truly the funniest guy I know. So anytime that I'm able to talk to him, it's always just me laughing and my grandmother and my aunt (laughs) always asking him, what on earth did he just say? It's a great time. So super excited that I was able to at least spend some sort of time with my family on New Year's Eve. I also have talked about my mother a lot on this show, I noticed, (laughs) and she passed away almost seven years ago this January 31st from complications related to her battle with lupus. So while January 1 is technically the new year, consciously or subconsciously, my body naturally enters a state of mourning for my mother the entire month of January. It's definitely a pattern I've noticed. You know, I just understand that right now it's just a tender time of year. Anybody else mourning? I get it. I never imagined at any time in my life that I would be without my mother. Definitely not at age 24 and absolutely did not see myself surviving in this world for seven years without her. Seven is my favorite number. It just always has been. It's the number of completion. So on my mother's seventh anniversary of her passing, I want to do something different. And I plan to carry on the entire year by doing something once a month that we love to do together. So I hereby declare that (laughs) I've clearly been watching Bridgeton. I hereby declare that we will have more art created this year, more singing out loud and more writing. I just have to be more creative. My mother was super big on cultivating every talent that she'd spot that I even had. And so while I was just shrugging everything off, she really, really honed in on what I was passionate about, even when I didn't even know I was passionate about it. (laughs) I want to do something different. And so with year seven without my mom and entering year 32 for my own self, I truly have to make the best of this year. I don't know where this sudden sprout of optimism came from, but I'm here for it. So cheers. Now on to the news. After decades of polluting the environment and occupying sacred land, the so-called Navajo Generating Station on the Utah-Arizona border is no more. The 775-foot smokestack is the largest one in the West. It was demolished in December of 2020. The demolition of the smokestacks at NGS is a solemn event, said Nicole Horseherder, executive director of a Navajo environmental grassroots group based out of Arizona. And while the majority of the plant's employees were from the Navajo and Hopi tribes, their health was definitely affected. Millions of tons of greenhouse gases have been polluting the air since the 1990s. The soon-to-be former owners of the land, the Salt River Project, must clean and restore the land before it's turned over to the Navajo Nation. Solar and wind projects could be on the horizon, but for now, it's cleanup time. And so, well, the boys, yes, the Proud Boys are supposedly returning to D.C. on the 6th. With plans to allegedly blend in with counter-protesters and try to cause chaos. 
Go home, Roger. In the words of Tia and Tamara, Hotel Harrington plans to close for a few days to prevent the rowdy bunch of man children from staying there like they've done in the past. January 6th, for those who don't know, is the day when Congress will count the electoral votes and declare Joe Biden and Kamala Harris the next president and vice president-elect because, well, the votes and math equals by Trump. So in the past, the rallies have turned violent. People were stabbed. Black Lives Matter banners have been burned. And yet the Trump administration continues to give them permits to gather. We will see what happens on the 6th, y'all. I truly, truly hope that what is expected to go down does not. But we will see. In closing, I spent New Year's Eve with one of my five people in my quarantine bubble. And, of course, I hung out with Lil Sage at midnight. She got in her first fight. Well, it was more like a little puppy fight with a little shizu. And, oh my goodness, it just really didn't go the way that I expected it to go. (laughs) But it happened. And I just got to say, she got it from her mama. You know, I don't mind getting a little scrappy sometimes. So besides Sage's little tussle, my New Year's Eve was really calm. My friend and I spent a lot of time reflecting on what blessings and abundance came into our lives in 2020 and what we were actually thankful for and what we learned from last year. I did realize that sheer willpower and a whole lot of sick and tired of being sick and tired changed the entire trajectory of where I thought my life was going. COVID caused me to seriously stop and think about where and who I wanted to be. Truly, only an out-of-this-world event, a wild experience like a global pandemic could have allowed me the time to change my course of direction. I took a leap of faith, and wow, I'm really actually very happy that I did. That one leap of faith led me to so many more opportunities, including being able to come and talk to y'all every week. Please know I'm forever grateful to be able to talk and share with y'all each week. So with that, talk to y'all later. Bye. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's stay out of my swamp for Florida, stay out of my hole for Arizona, stay out of my prickly pear for Texas, and stay out of my strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. 
It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. James Dykeman and O.G. Martin are two of the organizers behind Fix SAPD, an organization committed to repealing Chapters 143 and 174 of the Texas Local Government Code. Their fight involves removing police protections and increasing accountability for a city whose police union has been covering up issues for way too long. Here we go. OG and James, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thank you so much for having us. Cool. So um, let's just jump into the work. The, I, I, we met because of uh, police unions. You know, we have been doing police union work for a while. Uh, San Antonio has a particularly uh, bad set of laws and policies around police accountability, and you all are organizing around that. Can you talk about how you got to this work? Like, how did you get to sort of the structural work of policing, and what is that work for you? For us, this journey started right after um, the death of George Floyd. You know, in wallowing in our sorrows, like most Americans sitting on the couch looking at this going, what the heck is going on? And what do I need to do to, to stop this or, or improve life in America? For us in San Antonio, it looked like these two sets of laws, um, 143 and 174, really were a roadblock to any possible police reform because it's been tried before. You, you hear them saying, let's take away no-knock warrants. Let's, you know, have um, the police officer play basketball with the kids. Let's do all this police reform things. But yet it's not working because clearly people are still, you know, their lives are still being taken away and there's still um, lack of accountability and that's really where it stems from is this lack of accountability in our police system. And we started to look into ways that, that we can affect change in that aspect. And that's where 143 and 174 were found. And we looked at it and realized that these two laws really, they have uh, subsections within them that literally say a police officer can get away with not doing the right thing which is so simple. It's so simple. Just if we can have our police officers do the right thing, if we could have a structure to which that they are held accountable when they don't do the right thing, we would be able to see true, lasting, successful reform. That's a perfect summation. And pretty much my activism in this field, especially with police contracts, started with Campaign Zero and the work that Campaign Zero had done around police union contracts. And I remember back in February, I was really interested, especially during the Martin Luther King marches that we have here in San Antonio, about focusing on the contract for 2021, because that's when those negotiations were coming up again, about a year from that point. 
So I wanted to kind of feel, okay, how do we do this? How do we get involved? I tried to talk to other people in San Antonio who had worked on that in 2016. A lot of them had moved away. It was hard. And then I found myself at an organizer meeting and OG comes in. She's coming in with this great energy. And instead of talking about negotiations, she's like, you know what? We can just get rid of this. We can just take this all away and really just move beyond what we have with 174 and 143. And I was just, I was blown away. So I was able to, to jump on board and really be able to bring in, you know, especially all the data that we do, you know, our data trying to uncover all the indefinite suspensions. You know, we've been able to create the most comprehensive database on indefinite suspensions in San Antonio's police department in the nation, right? And unfortunately, like many other police departments, they just didn't collect that data. So it was up to us to make that. So that's really where our efforts have come in. And like OG said, it really does come down to, they keep saying they're going to reform these laws. They can change these laws. We can fix these things. We can use, you know, 174 to change things. And that just, that doesn't happen. And the unions come out saying, you know, the police associations come out saying, no, you know, we're not, we're not going to do this. We have these states' rights. You know, this is our rights. And it's like, all right, well, you know, we've given you chance after chance. This is the last straw. You know, that's really what it is. So for people who don't know that San Antonio has one of the highest rehire rates in the United States, so when officers get fired in San Antonio, the vast majority get rehired. Mm -hmm. Can you help us understand, you talk about 143 and 174. What is that? So 143 are civil service rules, right? So they outline kind of how a commission is built to make rules around policing and, you know, firefighters. You know, we like to always say, you know, we're specifying on police officers in this. But 143 pertains to both those public safety provisions. You can actually vote on them separately. We are voting just on the the police side. And 143 really sets out uh, disciplinary aspects in the background. So, for example, you have the 180-day statute of limitation for being able to investigate officers. This is like Matthew Luckhurst, who had the crap sandwich that he gave to that homeless man. And the arbitrator returned him in that case because they couldn't determine if it was 180 days outside or inside that, that time frame. So they returned him on a fact basis, which is what you would want. But we find that, you know, that 180 day is in there. You have the G file, which restricts your access to officers, personnel records, uh, almost impenetrable in many cases. And then you have the arbitration clause which is kind of our biggest you know, target there, which is essentially overturning the will of the police chief uh, through subjective means, right? You got Tim Garcia who called um, an individual who was being arrested. The man asked, why am I being arrested? Tim Garcia told him, well, because you're an effing N word, right? And the arbitrator said, well, we don't think this is indicative of racist behavior um, and overturned because he thought that the police chief was being too severe. And so it really does come down to arbitrators are subjective. It takes up a lot of time, a lot of cost. So the chief ends up settling. And and OG, if you want to tackle 174 there. All right. So 174 really is the collective bargaining aspect of the police union contract. It's what allows for them to be able to meet with the city and come up with this contract. And what we found is that through the contract, the police union has been able to I would say hijack public safety and make it all about their needs as opposed to the needs of the city. Oftentimes they would say within that contract is where things can be resolved. And it's probably for us even more frustrating because yes, it can be resolved within the police union contract, but that's not what the police union has done with the contract. What they have done is basically copy and pasted what um, James just talked about in 143 and pasted it onto the police union contract. 
when when the city goes and says, hey, while they're at the negotiating table says, hey, let's remove those disciplinary barriers. They have in the past come back with, well, you're going to have to give us more money in order to remove 180 day stipulation on um, statutes of limitation on discipline in order to remove the 48 hours notice that an officer must get before he's even questioned in a in an incident against him meaning he gets all the evidence in the case he gets all the eyewitness statements the videotape the recording he knows where the eyewitnesses live and he gets all that information with the lawyer to look over it for 48 hours will the union release that will they remove that disciplinary barrier no they they have said they will not start the negotiations there um, they will not remove the idea that officers' records are expunged after two years. They will not remove the idea of having a more uh, better way for, for people to, to report misconduct. Time and time again, that these issues have been brought up to them. They have said no. They have said, give us more money. They have said that is not a topic for discussion. In San Antonio, it seems that that is the topic of discussion for the citizens. During these negotiations, these issues, these key issues have been put on the back burner, have been put to the back of the line. And our mission at Fix SAPD is to fix that. We want to bring these issues to the front of the line because that's what San Antonio wants to talk about. And that's where our energy wants to go in our next, as we approach the next contract negotiations. We know they will not negotiate in good faith because they have everything they could ever want in 143. They could fix it in 174 and they say no. So if you if they can't do it, if they can't in good faith do that, then we have to take it upon ourselves as citizens and say, all right, we don't get to play with this anymore. Can you talk about like a couple things? One is as you organize around this, what we find is that people don't even know, right? People literally are like, I didn't know this was a thing. You know, like I had no clue. Is that what you find in San Antonio? And and if so, like, what do people say when you're like, did you know? Da, da, da? Are they like, who cares? Are they like, this is crazy. Like, what is the, what, what is it? You know, when we were out during early voting and on election day getting signatures, when, when you pitch this to people being like, hey, this is a petition for police accountability. People had a great appetite for it, right? Like they were really like, oh, what do you mean by police accountability? What do you want to do with that? And when you talked with them about how these laws are essentially undermining our ability to hold officers accountable, either from the perspective of the chief being able to hold his officers accountable or so many officers coming back to the force for egregious behavior, we really found that some people you know, really understood this as, oh, okay, I just needed a little bit more education. Some people don't know. They really need to take time. They're like, I want to go to your website. I want to figure this out. I want to read the chapters. Some people love to do that. And then we really do find that, you know, in some areas, there are people who they see any conversation about police accountability as, you know, not being against the police, right? Like, I'm for my police department. I got that sometimes when we were talking to voters like, oh, police accountability. And they were like, no, I'm, I'm for the police. And then they would walk on. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, and so that was really the strange environment that you would get. But for most of it, I mean, the energy was really great at, at the polls, at least, that we were finding. But it is an information game. And that is something that we're trying to play. We have to get the information out more. Um, and that obviously takes time and you know resources, money, in order to be able to get that message out. 
and talk to people and let people know. But we did have a poll by Bearfax, which is a local poll here, that did find that when asked about repealing collective bargaining rights for police officers and then also changing internal affairs, it was about a 65% support for that effort. That really did show us that there was good energy here, that there was a directive that we could take moving forward. And we just had to capitalize on that energy because we didn't want to lose that 65% or get the message hijacked by the San Antonio Police Officers Association, which is the police union here in San Antonio. So talk us through the process. How do you take away these two sections? And what do you say to people who are like, okay, we sort of get it, but but like you're actually going to open up an attack on all unions, right? That's like one of the things that, that I hear a lot. So I, I kind of want to address the attack on all unions first, because unlike other unions, they do not have the protections that are guaranteed to them under 174 as it is for the for police officers here in San Antonio. Um, usually unions, when they collectively bargain, they bargain for a pension, benefits, compensation, those kinds of things. That's what is at the forefront of their negotiations. However, that does not seem to be the case with police officers unions in general, but more so in San Antonio, what they care about is protecting problematic officers. We, I can say that Fix SAPD is not against unions or collective bargaining. However, the practice of chapter 147, 174, I'm sorry, gives police unions the power to basically impede justice the lengths that they go to to undermine accountability in our our public safety system does not protect their members and it certainly is not protecting the city. Um, Under these contracts that they've been able to to create, um, they have basically limited officers interrogations. They limit, I told you about the 48 hour issue where officers can have evidence for 48 hours. The law basically mandates the destruction of disciplinary records. So we can't hold them accountable for their actions. We can't keep record of their actions. And when we can investigate them, the law says we only have six months to the date to do so. That is not what other unions are talking about. Other unions stick to compensation benefits and how to better their their members not hurt them because that's what this is doing it's hurting them when your officers can't report an issue with other officers anonymously that's not helpful to your members that does not keep them safe that does not keep the city they work in safe so it's a disservice to other unions when we allow the police unions to operate and practice in this way it is very odd to see that police unions often support um, legislatures uh, that undermine other union and labor rights. And this happens pretty consistently. And you can see that actually here in San Antonio as well. Um, They'll support lawmakers who will actually on AFL-CIO's own website, they have ratings of different lawmakers. And you'll see that many of these police unions um, and associations as well as SAPOA here is endorsing individuals who have consistently have a record under, I think, like 20% by AFL-CIO's rating. So in that argument, it's very odd. You know, we would want to say, oh, we're against unions, but at the same time, the union that they seem to be defending or some people are defending has undermined others um, so consistently. Every single time. Yeah. Because the police union always eats first. The 
for anyone else. That's what it is. That is a, if that's not a line, I don't know what it is. The police union always eats first. Go ahead. OG over here preaching. That's true. So talk about your path to winning. How do you, how do you get to a win? The laws state themselves. After you, after you read all the crazy subsections, it says, hey, listen, reader, now you've gotten to the end of this. If you don't feel comfortable with any of the aforementioned barriers, if you don't feel comfortable with any of the things that we just listed, you can do away with it. All you have to do is get the people of the municipality to which these laws affect to sign a petition after they have signed the correct number of petitions you may um, submit that to the city, and then the city will now put these laws up for a referendum, for a vote, for repeal or keep. And that's exactly what we have done. We have said, let the people decide. If you want to keep this law from 1947 that eradicates and dissolves accountability, you can keep it. However, if you think this is the time to make a change, if you think this is the time to repeal these laws, you can repeal it. And nobody, no city manager, no mayor, no elected official can change your voice. You're literally, you vote, it counts. And that's what we've been working on. So 174 requires about 20,000 signatures to get it placed on the next municipal ballot. And 143 requires 80,000 signatures. And how these numbers come about is that for 174, it requires 5% of eligible San Antonio voters that voted in the last election, while 143 requires 10%. And so that's where you get that discrepancy in the numbers that that they're asking for for the signatures. And um, our team, you also, I just want to add, you also have 180 days to get these signatures Keep in mind, they must be San Antonio verified voters. And I kind of want to circle back to a question you asked um, about uh, how people are feeling when we bring this up to them. They're excited in San Antonio. I was actually shocked as to how many people already knew what was going on in their city, but just didn't know how to fix it. Every time I would bring up a petition, someone would say, it's the union. They're the ones doing this. It's the police. Uh, before I even say the word, it's it's SAPOA. We call them SAPOA here, but San Antonio Police Officers Association. It's them. They're the ones. I was like, you got it, girl. Sign the <laughs> Yes, you're right. You're right. Police officers have signed this petition. Present police officers. No, really? Yes, because it's that crazy. What, what if a police officer told me I had to ask to be moved to a different partner because my current partner was going to get us on CNN and have me looking crazy. This is not a, it's not a joke anymore. It's, they see that this is, is not where the city needs to be. The police in San Antonio, they're not where they need to be. They're not accountable for their actions and it's hurting police officers alike, along with other citizens. And when I hear stories, we did a drive through petition um, in the west side of San Antonio. When they came through and they, w- they would, we would tell them what we were doing, they would say, oh my gosh, they would actually stop and tell stories of their mother, of their brother, of their sister. And it was just so heartfelt that this city, they just needed 
an answer. They've been going through this alone and they didn't know how to fix it. And I am so glad for our team. I'm so glad for, for the work they've been doing to do this for our city, because if not, they would have gone another decade. They would have gone another decade not knowing that there was a way out of this mess. And it's been very humbling. And it's also just been surprising. I thought it would have to be like, okay, here's how it works. This is what happens. Nope. Some of them already, they already know, and they're ready to do the work to, to get us there. And it's all they have to do is sign it. And come May 2021, they get to vote for the first time in decades, in third, what is it over since 1947, y'all? Yeah, to bring that in, you know, with with 143 back in 1947, before the Voting Rights Act, and 174 before single member district voting here in San Antonio. It's just insane that we haven't been able to have a new look at policing, you know, before we had enfranchisement in this city for, you know, against voter suppression. It's just it's ridiculous that, you know, it's been going on for what, 80 years now or 70 years now for one law and almost 50 years for another. And it is, you know, it's, it's time, you know, and that's really why I love this group is it brought that opportunity to be like, yeah, you want 21st century, you know, policing, you want to be able to do something, you want change. Mm -hmm. Well, we can give it to you now. We don't have to go through any politician. You know, you don't need to be like, trying to get somebody to negotiate something for you at the table. You don't have to talk to your city council. You're like, nope, nope, this is me. This is what I'm doing. Power to the people. Like this is just pure, unadulterated power to the people as it gets. <laughs> so has Sapoa come out and called you all everything but a child of God? How's that been? <laughs> <laughs> they they have their, uh, you know, I follow them on, on Twitter. You know, it's fun just to see their posts. Their slogan is repeal equals defund. Yeah. Right. You know, they're doing everything in, in the world to kind of attach us to different things or or, you know, do the scary images or saying, well, crime's going up in San Antonio. If you repeal what will happen there. I mean, it's been the gambit. It's been yeah. everything you expect from them and more. But a comeback to that is that while they were having their blown up, the poor made signs that says, don't repeal, don't um, you're defunding the police. We have pictures of people signing our petition in front of their signs. They, then when they realized that just having the signs there weren't enough, they had people holding the signs. And we still have pictures of people signing the petition in front of the people holding the signs. And then when they told their people, you're going to have to do better than that, interject while they're trying to get those petition signed. Throw yourself in between that um, petition page and the, and the person they're talking to. And they tried that too. And I was there when one of the, the Sapoa supporters were saying, hey, you know what you're signing? Don't sign that. You're going to defund the police. And this man whipped around and, and looked at that person and he says, I know exactly what I'm signing. Go ahead. Go ahead. He said, don't play with me. Don't play with me. <laughs> when servicemen and women are signing in front of them, in front of their back the blue, don't repeal, don't defund sign, which was not what we're about. Those service members are signing right there in front of their faces. We have those pictures. So it's just, they are trying everything. You know, I'm from a different country. So they'll say like online, they'll say, you need to go back to your country. I'm from Nigeria. They'll say things like that. But it's wonderful to see the support we have in San Antonio because I don't have to say anything. San Antonio is like, step back. Hand me the clipboard. Hand me the clipboard. We know exactly what we're assigning. 
So it's mm-hmm. been it's that's been exciting. Awesome. Yes, it really has. That's exciting. Now, you uh, San Antonio police were just in the news recently, if I remember correctly, because there was uh, someone that the there was like a ring camera that that captured something on, on footage. Can you? Tell us about it. Tell us what happened. Tell us how that relates to your work. Yeah, so that was Zeke Rayford, if I'm if, if I remember correctly. He's only 18. He was outside his house. That was up uh, northeast from here. So that's up in Shirts, and that I mean horrified the nation. I mean, I know the reporter who did that for the Express News an incredible article exposing that um, horrendous behavior by the police. And it is one of those things that on our end, you know, we realize that by focusing on these laws, by changing these laws, by showing you know members of the community that you can repeal these laws, that you can get energy behind uh, taking away these laws that protect these officers that are going to go out, or they're going to abuse their power. In many of these instances, just like they did in shirts, they're going to be abusing their power. That if you really want justice and you really want accountability, you can't be having these barriers up to them. And that's 143, 174. Um, we know there are many cities um, around Texas, you know, Austin has 143, but doesn't have 174. You know, Dallas doesn't have either of them. They have meet and confer 147. So when we see things like what happened to Zeke, when we, you know, see people in our own community, right? When we see Marquise Jones, uh, Charles Roundtree, when we see Daryl Zamalt Sr., um, individuals that have just suffered and their lives have been taken by the police, and we want accountability, we have found that the city council, the mayor's office, city attorney, chief of police, they want to say these great things. Oh yeah, we'll, we'll take away all these things. Well, you know, ban no-knock warrants will really make sure that we have our body cam footage ready for to be produced. And that's great. But the problem is once all of that is out in the open and you have all those rules that have been broken, can an arbitrator just come back and overturn the chief of police right there? Right. Or can they just say, well, the chief's like, well, I don't know if, you know, an arbiter is going to do this. So I'm actually just going to, you know, do a settlement agreement so that, you know, they're suspended for two years. So we really find that to pursue this justice and to make sure that officers know that there are consistent outcomes to their, you know, poor behavior and misconduct, you have to be able to repeal these laws. And to even add to that, so that case that happened was out in shirts. And unfortunately, what we are, some people would say, well, now fix SAPD's um, 143 platform will only affect San Antonio. That's where I try to also spread this little message. San Antonio was the birthplace, the basically where the bones and structure of police union contracts were created um, by Ron Delore. And that structure is what other unions use around this country. They use his playbook. And so we truly believe that here in San Antonio, if we are able to affect this change and really bring about this um, repeal of these two laws, it will send a ripple effect throughout this nation. I've been able to kind of talk to a lot of people while out petitioning, and which I'm so grateful for because I get a new, uh, new perspective each time. And I was at the AT&T Center here in San Antonio during the early voting, I was collecting petitions. And this man, while I was getting from a group, waited in line or just waited there. And I collected from a group of six people or so. And I turned around and I said, hey, you want, you want to sign the petition? You heard what we were talking about? He said, yes, I want to sign it. And I said, are you a registered San Antonio voter? And he said, no, I'm, I'm not, but I, I need to sign this. I need, like I couldn't get him not to sign this. And I said, you know what, go ahead and sign this. He's like, I need to sign it. They've destroyed my family. 
we're broken, we're broken, I need to sign this, even though he what he could not, he was from Elmendorf, which is still kind of, you get shirts there, it's all these um, little towns around San Antonio, and it just showed just how, how affected people are by police. We're all affected. There's no nook and cranny you can go to where you're not safe. So I hear the story from this man and I go to the, this is uh, AT&T Center. Then I go to the north side of town, which is, you know, you would say the more affluent area of San Antonio. And I speak to this woman about it. And we, it was, just, I was just in a store and I was talking to her and she's like, Hey, I want to sign this. And she's like, you know, um, probably in her fifties. I'm like, you know, okay. I'm kind of curious. And she kept talking and she's like, I got pulled over and the police were so rude to me just to give you the juxtapose. <laughs> you know, this man is crying for his life. And this woman is crying for a ticket. It just was, they were so rude to her and it's just, from big to low, to, like it doesn't matter. It's we there. Every single person is affected by this in some way, somehow, which makes it just something we can all come together on and agree on. Like James said, sixty-five percent of the city already supports this. It's clear. It's clear. And we wish we could. We really wish that this would be the stepping stone, the ripple effect that would affect all these other cities that need this. What can listeners do? Listeners all over America. <laughs> Listeners can go to fixsapd.org to learn more about how 143 and 174 affect the city of San Antonio's policing, um, but can also be able to kind of get a glimpse as to how the police associations around the country have such a powerful effect on their city's public safety and figure out what can you do in your city? Are there laws in your city that, that look like 143 and 174? Are it, because it may, not, it may not be the same thing in, outside of Texas, but there may be some way, somewhere in there that you as citizens would be able to take a shot at this, to take a chance at this. And, and it may be out there for you, I, I, I would hope so. And other than that, we just would like you to share Fix SAPD's message, donate to us to help this going because we're doing this in a pandemic, y'all. It's been a little tricky and we've been able to so far keep everyone healthy and safe, um, but it, it comes at a cost and we really um, encourage donations from people like you um, to just help us see that through so that we make sure that everyone is doing this in the most safest manner possible. We've been able to gather quite a bit of signatures, but as you know, these laws require tons of signatures and we are still, we still have a long way to go. All the donations will definitely go towards uh, our petition gathering efforts and come campaign, those will be very beneficial there as well. But for the most part, if anything you can do, just share the message, share the word that San Antonio is doing something here to change public safety. We consider you friends of the pod and can't wait to have you back. So uh, thanks for joining and I can't wait to get an update. Thank you so, so much. Yeah, we can't wait to update you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pods of the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Samuel Sinyangwe, and our special contributor, Janetta Elzey.